welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. I'm just going to draw attention to the fact that I'm using the hands-free mic for the first time today because then once I've said it out loud and said it's in my pocket and it's under my hair, now I can move on from that (laughs) and focus on today's sermon. So can I get a clock running up there, guys? Thank you. Upwards from zero up. Thank you. Let's just get straight into it. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote this note down when Justin was speaking. What you believe about God is the filter through which everything in your life is going to pass. What you believe about God is the filter that everything in your life is going to pass through. Super important what you believe about God. He also quoted Bill Johnson who said that our faith can only go as far as our awareness of the goodness of God. So those are two points I want you to keep in mind today. As we look at a couple of accounts from the Bible, we're going to go Old Testament for no reason other than that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at some people who were desiring a new normal. They wanted something new, something better than where they were. And we're going to look at how they positioned themselves for that. Is that okay? We're going to start with Joshua. I'm going to give you some quick background. You can read the whole story. I did a couple times in the last few weeks and it was pretty frustrating. <laughs> I got pretty annoyed with some people in that story. But let's, let's talk about, let's just lay the scene. So we've got the children of Israel. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They've been given a promise from God that they would inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. For 400 years they've sat on that promise. They've, it was given to Abraham and it was given to Isaac and it was given to Jacob. So they're sitting at their dinner tables going, hey, we're going to this new land. God's going to give it to us. And one generation passes, gives that story to the next. The next generation says to their children, we're going to the promised land. Why, that's emotional. (laughs) Have you ever felt like you've got a destiny? You're contending for a promise or a destiny forever. And you're still there? That's where these people are when Moses enters the story. And he comes in to help lead the people out of their slavery. Now, these people want a new normal. They're they're crying out for it. And we know that because in Exodus, now I read from the Amplified because more words is more words and I love it. So Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, if you're taking notes, that's Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'm going to read some parts of it and skim over, paraphrase other parts. Now, this is God talking, and he says, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel. They want something different, and God's heard them. Who the Egyptians have enslaved, and I have faithfully remembered my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Doesn't feel like it, but okay. So I say to the children... I'm your Lord, you'll be, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'm going to pull you out of this land, we're going to change the situation. And if we skip down to verse 8, it says, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord, you have the promise of my changeless omnipotence and faithfulness. And verse 9, Moses told this to the Israelites, remember they wanted change. But they did not listen to him. 
because of their impatience and despondency and because of their forced labour. These people are crying out for a new normal. They desperately want change. They've been telling their children generation after generation of the promise that God's given them. And when God says, buckle up, let's go, they say, eh, no. I'm not listening to that. Why? It's because they were despondent and all they could see was their current circumstances. Crappy circumstances. But they were so focused on their circumstances that they couldn't see God anymore. The story goes on. This is still the background. There's plagues, there's chaos. Eventually Pharaoh says, get out of here. Go. I don't want you. Get out. And here's a side note. This one's free. Bonus. The children of Israel took all the wealth of Egypt with them out of that land. Now God's promised them a land they're going to that's going to be blessing, amazing, abundance, everything they ever need. But he still gives them permission to take all the wealth out of that land with them. It's in Exodus chapter 12 verses 35 through 36. Furthermore, the Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. Verse 36. And the Lord gave the people such favour in the sight of the Egyptians that they granted their request. And in this way, they plundered the Egyptians on the way out the door. Why? Because God goes far beyond just making it. He goes far beyond just enough. And even on the way to the promise, he's going to bless you on the way, abundantly, with all of the wealth of Egypt. My personal perspective on that is it's the 400 years of wages they should have been paid. God's more than enough. So now the children are in the wilderness. They're wandering around moaning about how everything was better off in Egypt. Just did my head in. And yet, God is good. He sends them food every day to sustain them. Every day for 40 years. And God is so good, so, so good, that he makes the manna taste like the promise. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, it says, The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Why? It could have tasted like wheat picks. Right? Sufficient? Boring? Instead, God makes it taste like the promise because he wants them to have his perspective. Guys, this is where we're going. It looks like this. It tastes like this. Let's go. Their destiny is going to be so good and God keeps putting it in front of their face. Now, it's Joshua that we're wanting to talk about. So Moses selects 12 spies to go into the promised land and to scope it out, right? Now, I always thought this was like a bit like a war draft. Just put some names in a hat, pull you out. Oh, again, you're going. Oh, you're going. 
pack your stuff, off you go. That's not how it was. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, it says these men were all rulers of their tribes. This means they were educated in the faith. They were able to interpret the law. They'd been put in positions where they counselled the people. They sat in leadership meetings with Moses. And they were familiar with the promise. So in Numbers chapter 13, verses 17 through 20, I'm not going to read it all, I'm going to pull out some bits. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, go this way, go that way, go all over there. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, and whether the land in which they live is good or bad, and whether the cities in which they live are open camps or fortified cities. And what the land is, whether it's productive or lean, whether there's timber on it or not, and make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the first ripe grapes. That's his instructions to them as they go into the land. And you might know the story, the spies go out for 40 days, they go top to bottom or maybe bottom to top, whatever. They go all over the land and they come back with some stuff. And 10 of the spies say, there's giants in the land, which was true. And we are but grasshoppers in our own sight. So they've got an identity issue. They don't know who they are. They still believe they're slaves. They believe they're not good enough and that they're defeated before they've even begun. Caleb and Joshua are so excited to take the land that God has promised them. And in Numbers 13, verse 30, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, let's go up at once and take possession of it, for we will certainly conquer it. And in Numbers 14, verses 7 and 8, Joshua and Caleb say, the land through which we passed as spies is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. So you've got 12 rulers, 12 esteemed people from the congregation. Ten of them come back and go, not doing that. I know God gave us this promise, but no way, man, I'm out, hard pass. And two of them are saying, let's go now. Let's go now and possess it. Because God's already given it to us. And in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, it says, All the congregation said, Let's stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. <laughs> Imagine pastoring this. Two guys come back and they have the audacity to believe the promise of God that they've been talking about for 400 years, telling their children. God's going to give us this land. God's going to give us this land. Two of them come back and say, let's go take the land. And the congregation rises up and says, let's stone them. Because most of the leadership team's like, oh, no, 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 hard pass. I don't want Moses' job. 
what a disaster. Why are their reports so different? What is the difference between these 10 guys and Joshua and Caleb? Joshua and Caleb have a much higher awareness of the goodness of God. And say that again. Joshua and Caleb have a much higher awareness of the goodness of God. How? All 12 were recognised rulers and leaders in their tribes. All 12 were brought out of Egypt through miraculous signs and craziness with the wealth, plundered the wealth. All 12 of them were sustained daily by food that tasted like the promise. All 12 of them sat in the leadership meetings and heard the vision. And all 12 of them had access to Moses' mentorship. So what's the difference between these 10 and those two? Here's one difference I found. Joshua spent time in the presence of God. If we look in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 7, it says, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Everyone had access to the presence of the Lord. Just like we do. The veil's been torn. You can enter the Holy of Holies. You have a permanent invitation to sit in the presence of God. Exodus chapter 33 verse 11 says, And so the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his attendant Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua stayed for hours in the presence of God. Now, I read all of Exodus and Numbers a couple of times preparing for today, and I didn't find a single account of anyone else going to the tent of meeting. There were numerous opportunities when Moses said, I'm going up the mountain to talk to God. Come, come over here, sit close. I'm going up the mountain to talk to God. Stay here, get some on you. And you know what the people said? We're right. We'll just stay over here. Hey, report back. Let us know how that goes. Numerous occasions. One time they stayed in the camp and made false gods out of gold to worship. They all had access to the presence and they were not positioning themselves to walk out their destiny. Joshua spent time in the presence of God and it greatly impacted his perspective. His perspective of who God was and by extension, it impacted his own identity. Not a slave, not a homeless wanderer, not a stateless citizen, not defeated before he began, but a conqueror and a possessor of his full identity. This week I went for a walk with our daughter Chloe. We have one son, one daughter. We went for a walk and I said to her something that I say a lot, holding hands, and I said, oh, you're my favourite daughter. <laughs> and Lee can probably guess what she said to that. Oh, I know. 
said, how do you know that? She said, because he tell me like 10 times every day. <laughs> if you say to our daughter, oh, you're amazing, she does not say thank you. She says, I know. <laughs> and if you say that thing that you did is brilliant, it's incredible, she goes, I know. Why? Why is that? It's because she spends time in the presence of her parents who continually remind her of her identity as a much-loved daughter created on purpose for a purpose. She knows exactly who she is. Spending time in God's presence is where you're going to get his perspective. It's where you're going to come to know his nature and by extension your identity. Our faith can only go as far as our awareness of the goodness of God. So I'm going to ask you to consider this. Are you waiting on a Moses to spend time in the presence of God for you? Just a thought. Here's another key difference I found between the ten and Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua had their focus on God and not their circumstances. Moses sent the spies out to perform an audit of the land to go and check out what God had promised. He asked them to report on the agricultural industry, the natural resources, the existing setting planning that was in place. He did not once ask them if they thought they could take the enemy in a fight. Why? Why wasn't that part of the brief? Because God already told them they could. God had already said, I'm taking you in here to possess the land. Are you focused on circumstances? Or are you focused on what God says about who you are and what he wants for you? Let's move on to David, King David, the shepherd boy. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel's a prophet and he gives King Saul some instructions from God, says God wants you to go and do this, Saul does the opposite, then he tries to blame someone else, and then he tries to blame God and God's not manipulated, so it doesn't work out. Samuel is super disappointed because he's the big prophet who said this is the king and the king's like total screw up screwing up. He's not a screw up, he is screwing up. And in verse 36 of 1 Samuel 15, it says that God regretted making Saul king over Israel. Man, that's hurtful. The normal for Israel at this point in time is no longer good enough. Their king's off track, sinning against God, and they need a new normal. And that's the scenario when in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and anoint the next king. David's a teenager, he's a shepherd boy, he's out watching the flock and he wasn't even invited to the king naming party. He's out in the field. Jesse brings in seven of his sons, starting with the oldest. 
And Samuel says no to all of them. No, no, not him, not him, not him, not him. Have you got someone else? Now note, culturally, probably what everyone was expecting was that the oldest, who was apparently big and muscly and trained, and culturally that's the thing, is the oldest son gets the blessing. So probably everyone expected Samuel to anoint. Um, I'm going to say Eliab. That's how I'm going to pronounce that. Everyone was expecting that he was going to be anointed king. That's not what happened. And in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel says, There must be someone else. And Jesse says, well, you know, like there's David watching the sheep. Send someone, go get him. So they bring David in. And Samuel anoints David and the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And David went straight back to the fields to tend the sheep. Well, his older and bigger brothers went off to war with the Philistines. So David's the king. He's the anointed one. He's gone back to his old job. <laughs> sitting there doing nothing while his brothers are out fighting the war. Not doing nothing. Sitting in his old destiny while his brothers are out fighting the war. What do you think he was doing in the field? David the psalmist. David the worshipper. One of the points Lee made last week was that before Jesus could minister to others... He had to take himself away and spend time in the presence of God. And at this stage in David's life, uh, Saul was doing really badly and he had some mental health issues and his advisors said, hey, we need to get someone to come in and play the harp for you and minister to you. So they went, oh, we know someone who can do that. It's David, the shepherd boy. So they pull David in and David ministers to the king he worships. And he goes back to the sheep, back to Saul, back to the sheep, back and forth. And then one day his dad says in 1 Samuel 17, go and take food to your brothers at the war. So he does because he's obedient and he's been sitting out in the pasture, worshipping God, spending time in his presence. And he comes and he sees Goliath and Goliath comes out into the battlefield every day. For 40 days in a row now, Goliath has come out and issued a challenge to Israel. And the Bible says that the Israelite army shook with fear. This is their normal. Some big bloke coming out and going, who are you? Your God's nothing. No, 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 no. Come on, fight me. And they're shaking in fear because they don't know who God is. And David comes along and he goes, what is going on here? Who's this clown talking against our God? And he says, it's a bit like me, what's the prize? If I kill him, <laughs> I like a prize. What's the pro what do I get? What's the prize if I kill this guy? And David's brother, Eliab, the oldest, who wasn't anointed king, who God said didn't have the right heart, starts tearing David down. Oh, who are you? What are you doing here? 1 Samuel 17, 28 and 29 says that Eliab heard what he said to the men and his anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down here? 
With whom did you leave those few sheep you're supposed to be looking after? I know your presumption and your overconfidence and the evil of your heart, David. You've just come down here to watch. And David says to him, what have I done now? It's just a question. And David, the Bible says, turns his back on his brother and asks somebody else, what's the price for killing that guy? And I said all that to say this, you will never kill the giants in your life until you can turn your back on the negative opinions that others have about you. I'll say it again. You will never kill the giants in your life until you can turn your back on the negative opinions that others have of you. You're not going to walk into your full destiny while you're still entertaining people who like to rehearse your history. And that includes you. If you're trash-talking yourself and if you're reminding yourself of your past failures, stop it. Because God's opinion of you is brilliant. Brilliant. And who are you to disagree? You're not your past. You're not your biggest mistake. You're not a slave. You're not an orphan. You're not a person with no place to belong. And you're not a failure. You're created by the living God on purpose, for a purpose. That's good news. Mitchie, can I get you up on keys, please? <clears throat> we can't take old practices and old mindsets if we want to step into the new. If you want a new normal, spend time in his presence. Don't wait for someone else to do it for you. Because there's an invitation, an open invitation for you to come and spend time with him yourself. You want a new normal? Get your eyes off your circumstances and get your eyes on who God is. Because he's good. And he's faithful. You want a new normal? Turn your back on the negative opinions about yourself. Because it's not who God says you are. Spending time in his presence will upgrade your beliefs about who God is. And upgrading your beliefs about who God is will in turn upgrade your beliefs about who you are. And when your beliefs about your identity align with who he says you are, then you can walk in the full destiny that God has prepared for you. Can I ask you to stand? Let's all close our eyes. I want to ask you some questions that I want you to ask yourself. Are you waiting on a Moses to spend time with God on your behalf?
Are you focused on your impossible circumstances or are you focused on what God says about who you are and what he wants to do in you? Are you stuck believing lies about your worth? While everybody's eyes stay closed, if one of those questions is where you at, if one of those questions twinges you, can you acknowledge it by raising your hand? Because I want to pray for you. I see hands. Thank you, I see hands. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are so, so, so good and that your plan for us is that we have an open heaven and an open invitation to come and spend time with you. Help us to do that, Father God. Help us to practically clear schedules and make time. Prompt us, Holy Spirit, to remember the importance of it. God, when our circumstances are big, we just thank you that by spending time with you, we get our eyes off them, they shrink, and you become in your rightful place as all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present life giver. And God, for anyone who's got beliefs in them, that are rubbish and don't align with what you say about them. Show them in your word who you think they are. Reveal to their heart who you think they are. Chosen, bought at a most expensive price, created on purpose for a purpose. God, we thank you for touching hearts here right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer team, can I ask you to come forward? Church, I encourage you to make this week a changing week in your life. If something today spoke to you, tell someone before you leave today so that they can ask you how it's going next week. If you need prayer or encouragement or someone to talk to, these people would love to do that with you. But for now, the cafe is open, the service is concluded. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday.